0: Well, well, look, Matt. This is this is an easy conversation because this is um, a, a podcast show about the nature and appreciation of transformations, uh, mm-hmm. especially in leadership. And I know you've had several significant transformations um, in your life, and and probably you know just to bring people full circle, you've had a significant one as recent as 2018. Uh, But before that, you became a leader on a a major sports team. So I want to start there because that transition in life for most people is a difficult one, moving from a high school sports environment to a collegiate sports environment, uh, particularly the one you joined, which was the the LSU Tigers. um, Mm -hmm. I'm fascinated by that because that transition in life is difficult for a lot of people. I'd like to start there with a conversation on your perspectives looking back on what it was like to move uh, into a collegiate level of play that was substantially different than what you were used to.
1: Yeah, so um, it's really – it's kind of a strange thing, like, when you get recruited at that level, because I had – I had offers to play at a lot of different schools, and, you know, I was in contact with all these different, you know, high-level college coaches, and, you know (laughs) – enough of that goes on around you and you start to believe like, man, I'm really great. Like I'm awesome at this, you know, like, oh, my path is set. Like I'm going to pick the coolest school to go to, which for me was LSU being a Louisiana boy. That was my home state school and not to mention they won the national championship in 2007, which was my senior year in high school. So like why go anywhere else, you know? And, um, but, I mean, it didn't stop other coaches from calling me and, you know, trying. And I was just kind of like, look, y'all are wasting y'all's time. Like, I'm going to LSU. Like, I'm good. I'm set. And um, so, anyway, you know, you go all through high school and then everybody's basically in Louisiana football is huge and everybody basically worships you, you know, like you're the best thing, like this and that. And whether they meant it or whether they were just trying to be nice to me, I don't know. But um, so that – that gets to your head you know and you show up to baton rouge and get on campus and you start to meet some of the other players some guys that have been there for three or four years and i start to size them up and i'm like man these dudes are pretty big like like these guys are kind of scary you know so um immediately like you get on the field with them you strap up you you do pads and you lock up and and i got trucked a couple times early on and I was like man I don't know like my confidence just got shot you know basically and and um so it's hard to understand the process like when you get there you think oh I want to go 100 miles an hour I'm going to get on the field this year I'm going to I'm going to play I'm going to start or whatever and you know there's people there that are kind of telling you like pump the brakes a little bit you know focus on these things why don't you focus on school a little bit focus on your weight training and, and building yourself up, getting stronger, faster, whatever. And um, it, it's just hard to kind of slow down when it's been so fast for so long through the whole recruiting process. And a lot of people, in, including myself, don't understand of that, that slow down period when you get there. And, um, you know, it, it really was hard on me to kind of get through that. And and get to the other side of of being an upperclassman and understanding. Okay, so now I know what the year looks like. When you get down there, you have no idea what's about to happen. You don't know, like you don't know if it's just going to be crazy running and punishment and people screaming and hollering. And and some of that was there. It, it does happen, but it's not like just on a crazy level. And um but anyway so so you kind of get your feet wet and you figure out your place on the team and everything, and you know sometimes you just have to wait a little bit longer than you want to, and that was kind of the case for me and you know i I kind of let it become a bit of a bitter kind of a sticking point for me, and I just kind of drew into myself and became selfish and was like look i'm I'm not really interested in." You know, being a team player, I want the best for me. Like I want to, I want to do this because I want to make some money in the NFL, or I want to, um, you know, be be known as a great player in, in Louisiana. It's not about the guys around me so much as it is about me, and that kind of fell into that trap, and um, and it it really, you know, kind of halted my playing career in the end, and just being uh, selfish and and not really looking to see the big picture and understanding that I'm a part of something bigger than me and something that can go on and outlive me for forever, you know, and I, and I had an opportunity to, you know, help build that. And, um, and, you know, it's one of those things that I kind of look back on now and, and, you know, I regret some of the decisions and choices that I made, but all those decisions and choices eventually would end up saving my life, which is really a wild story when I really think about it. You know, it's, I've just, I've been through a lot and we can get into that too, but uh, I don't know if you got anything you want to add to that.
0: Yeah. Wow. You covered a ton right there in, in um, one of your first major transitions. And, and, and I find that young men um, at that age and that transition self-image and identity are in question for the most part. Um, so so can you reflect back and help me understand from a self-image perspective, was your confidence in yourself rooted in something that you created or was it an identity that was placed on you that you were trying to play the part?
1: Yeah, that, that's really good. Um, so I would say when I first arrived, that identity was was kind of placed upon me. And it was it was from, you know, teammates and coaches and all these people pumping me up and telling me, you know, you're you're one of the best players in the state. Um, You know, this and that. And then when reality hits and and you get down there and you really see the level of competition you're up against, then your identity starts to kind of change into what you think about yourself, you know, And, and in like I said, reality smacked me in the face. And, and um, I started to lose confidence in myself and my ability. And like, can I really do this? Can I really compete with some of these guys, you know? And you want to do it right away. Everybody wants results now. And at that point in my life, I didn't see or understand every little step, every little thing I did mattered. To me, it was all the big things. Only the big things matter, right? Playing and and being a star and this and that. But the little things matter. Like what you what you fuel your body with. What you how many um, sessions of you know weight training and stuff that you do. Are you doing every single rep? Are you doing it to your fullest? You know these little things. A lot of people just tend to look over and say, "Yeah, I'm, I'm going to get my end result." I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just go through the motions, through the little things, and I'm not going to really dive in and focus on each individual step along the way, and that was really kind of the trap that I fell into.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting, and I appreciate that, that so much. So when, when the identity crumbles a little bit, what was your default? Um, for instance, some people have faith as a default. Some people have coaching, mentorship somebody steps in to be the Jedi master for a period of time until, you know, the confidence ramps back up a little bit. What was that journey like?
1: Yeah. So, so my default, cause I'm, I'm more of like an introverted person. Mine was just kind of like pull away and mm. um, just kind of spend some time alone and, and like just kind of try to think my way through um, the challenges I was facing. Um, that's, that's just kind of my go-to even, even the day at times, like, I try to kind of pull away. And, and at that point in my life, I was more looking into myself and like, what do I need to do to get better? And now I, I have different motivations that I kind of pull away and, and kind of draw to in my spirituality, my faith in Christ. That's, that's really kind of the change and in, in that from then to now for me. So.
0: Yeah. I think um, for, for a lot of young men in that transition, having, um, uh, for lack of a better term, a healthy process to follow, some men get really isolated in in that retraction and get stuck in their thoughts when I'm really curious your perspectives on what is truth at that time. Because what we, those reels that are playing in our head about self-image and that I'm not good enough and that I have to do all this work and oh my gosh, we sometimes get trapped in, in the replay of that narrative. And we think it's truth from the perspective that we're thinking in right, right at that moment, but it may not necessarily be the truth or experience for anyone else outside of your experience. So in, in finding truth, um, what advice would you have um, for yourself? if, If you got a chance to talk to that kid who was sitting alone in his thoughts, what might, narrow his time of growth and transformation with something that you could tell him that might snap him out of that loop that um that he's thinking
1: yeah i i mean i guess if i could go back and and speak to my younger self i would say you know this life is not just about you and what you want you know it's about it's about what you can pour into others you know and and by doing that you know a lot of people will sit there and think well you know, I'm not getting what my needs met when I when I spend all my time focusing on somebody else. Well, maybe not your immediate needs, but but really deep down in in your soul, that's what pours life into us all is is being a part of something bigger than ourselves. You know, and that could be at that point in my life, that would have been that LSU football program. You know, being a part of of something that was bigger than me, that could outlive me, and that I could you know, I could always go back to, um, if I needed. And, um, for now, you know, it's, it changes as you get older when, you know, we were talking about family and kids and everything else. And, you know, that's kind of part of it now. And, but yeah, back on your point on isolation, I I think that's very good to hit because, you know, I'm, I've been a part of a bunch of different like men's retreats and stuff. And, you know, that is like, the number one thing that most people come away with is like, I'm isolated. Like I have people around me, sure. But how many of those people can I really like pour my soul into and and can really like give me growth mentally and spiritually? Like there's so many men out there that are isolated. And it's because we think, you know, we, we're, we're strong and tough and we've got to figure this out on our own and we've got to plow away no matter what we face, and you know there is some of that that comes along with being a man. But at the same time, um, you know, I just encourage people to to kind of reach out and try to find a group that that you can live life with, and not feel so isolated and and um, you know being being alone, because that's that's a tough place to be as a man for sure.
0: Absolutely, and that's the number one issue that that I find young men face uh, uh, as well. And it starts at a really early age, uh, particularly in that adaptation to the next level of experience and moving from a high school environment to a collegiate environment, and then from there into the professional world. It seems to um, create a lot of victims along the way if we're not if we're not careful. And you know, uh, being a man of faith. As well, I, I love the the mantra, "I am my brother's keeper," so we, we kind of need to be on the lookout for that if if somebody's not strong enough to do it on their their own accord, it, I, I feel like it's my responsibility to identify that and be aware enough of it to go lift that person up or, or at yeah. least offer so that maybe that can snap an opportunity for for influence there yeah. um, I, I'm curious, Matt your perspectives of leadership being on the team so we're all in the the Joe Burrow craze right now he's he's led yeah, a, really a tremendous awesome, <laughs> a tremendous transformation at LSU he's got a great story and he's continuing to create that story so tell me about the leadership on the team you were part of the the offensive line that defended the leader of the team back there how you have experience in athletics. Everybody knows the value of each person on the team. Tell me about the influence of good leadership versus bad leadership in in a position like quarterback, because I think that, that that's one of those ubiquitous laws that is consistent, be it in sports or in business. If you don't have good leadership behind you, uh, calling the shots it kind of really makes your job on the front line a lot harder I'm uh, just curious about your perspectives on on leading from behind
1: yeah so I, I really feel like with the team that I was a part of um, you know we had we had some strong leaders on the team but we never really had just a Joe Burrow type leader you know what I mean somebody that literally everyone would look to and and may not have been, you know, outspoken. I I would say one person we had that everybody kind of looked to as a leader when I played was uh, Tyron Matthew, the honey badger. I know everybody knows him, Um, but he was, he was a, he was kind of a silent, really quiet kind of guy on the team. And, um, you know, when he spoke up, people listened though, you know, and I think some of the things that, that I recognize now, maybe I didn't see as much then, but, like somebody with a Tyron Matthew or, or even a Joe Burrow, like the one trait that I see the characteristic that sticks out to me is they're, they're just willing to sacrifice themselves for the, for the whole team, you know, like Tyron, like he was a little guy. He's not a big guy, you know, and he's, I mean, he's had a tremendous career in the NFL and he's one of the best players on, uh, in defense, in the NFL. And, um, but he was not a big guy, but, that dude would hit somebody with everything he had. Like, he was not scared to lay out. And and he would do it for his teammates. Like, he wouldn't do it for himself. Like, he wouldn't try to pump himself up and this and that. Like, he would do it for his teammates. And if somebody else was the one that picked up the ball and ran it in the end zone, like, he was the first one there to celebrate. And, like, he was sacrificial. I see the same traits, and I don't know Joe Burrow, but on the field, from what I have seen, like, and what I've heard about him from other people, is he sacrifices himself, like his time. The amount of time that I was told that Joe Burrow would spend up there preparing each week for teams is unbelievable, and not only the time before practice, but after practice, they would stay and just continue to run routes and work, and that, and I think back on my career there, and you know, we had, we definitely had guys that would put in extra time, but nothing to the amount that I've heard that that Burrow would do like he I mean he would live there basically from what I was told and um it's just that that element of sacrificial um um unselfishness that that really I think is what is the leadership that a team needs to to become great and um and, you know, we had some of that with Tyron and then obviously, you know, the 2019 arguably the best college football team to ever do it had, had one of the best leaders um, that that program has ever seen. And, and now we're seeing that in the NFL, like there's just something about him. He's just a alpha dog, Joe Burrow. And, you know, it's just like, it's contagious, like people are drawn to it, you know, and like, I mean, it's nothing special. Like, yeah, he might dress up and, and do some goofy stuff, and just having fun, you know, with the media. But, I mean, I guarantee you that dude is sacrificing a lot to get his team to where they are, sacrificing his time, um, you know, all these different things. And um, and that's that's the number one thing that I see when I think back on on my team and and teams that have since then is that sacrificial leadership that, that really draws a team together and propels them to levels that most people can achieve, you know?
0: Yeah. It's, um, I don't know how to say it any other way than, you know, it, when you see it, there's just something about that kind of leadership that is captivating. It's clear. And it's not only in the way they hold themselves, but it's also in the actions that they take, um, that are visible, and the ones that you hear, and you're just dumbfounded. Like seriously, that he stays after practice. What? Who who does that these days? And what what could we do if we had that kind of work ethic? Um, how far could we optimize our outcomes if we if we addressed it as something bigger than us and sacrificial? That's that's a great point, Matt. Um, the, I think right under loneliness. Uh, The second problem that I hear a lot um, about is finding purpose and passion. And that's really hard in transition for you to be able to identify purpose and passion. I think for an athlete, the the roadmap is kind of spelled out for you, kind of know what that looks like. But for a lot of people who may not be self-aware enough of their giftedness, they might struggle with purpose and passion. Um, help me help my audience identify, um, either a process or a pathway to purpose and passion that, that, that might help shorten the time. Because what I appreciated from your story that you told recently was that there's this slowdown. There's this pause that we have in transition where we kind of got a level set reset but for a lot of people, they're still looking instead of acting um, in confidence or stepping forward in confidence or from a centeredness of, of passion. Um, what advice would you have for young men who are struggling in purpose and passion finding?
1: Yeah, see, that's a that's a tough one um, because I guess for me, You know, I would always think my purpose would be for me to find happiness, like to to whatever it is that that would kind of draw me out. And eventually my purpose, what I would want it to be, would be to find happiness. Right. And, um, you know, and and whatever that may be, whatever career path you choose, um, you know, whether it's uh, something that, you know, is beneficial to society, whether it's something that's just for a corporation or whatever it is you want to do, you know, and and for the longest time I was looking to find happiness in buying things for me or doing things for me or thinking that maybe if I can just get this next promotion, maybe that's what's going to make me happy. And then once I get that, then maybe I'll be able to, um, you know, go on some of these trips that I've always wanted to do or, or go hunting somewhere or this and that. I'm a big in the outdoors. And, um, you know, that was what I thought was going to drive me to, to my happiness, which ultimately was what I wanted for my purpose is just to be happy. And, um, you know, if you chase that long enough, if you really think that all the things in this world are going to, I guess, settle you in who you are, then I, I mean, I've found this as I've gotten older, it's just been a long road to more and more and more disappointment and um, you know, just trying to really decide what it is that, that we're all here to, we're all here for in the end, at the end. And, you know, I I really just think it's just to serve people, you know, and, and be, be a servant centered person and not just doing things because you think it's going to be good for you, but also weighing, on what are they going to be the benefits for the people around me whether it be your coworkers whether it be your teammates whether it be your family your friends and by doing that it's almost like a like a mind trick like it it makes you think okay well I'm just going to pour everything in everybody else and I'm going to be tired and unhappy at the end of the day well it's actually the opposite that happens like <clears throat> when you start to really pour yourself into other people, and into other meaningful things and causes around you, then that in turn pours back into you in a way. And for me, that's where I found purpose is, is quit trying to serve myself all the time and, and look to where I can be a benefit to somebody else, you know, and it doesn't have to be this monumental thing where I've got to help hundreds of thousands of people. It could be your neighbor across the street that instead of, walking by and saying oh hey what's up like really striking up a conversation with them and asking them questions and and trying to figure out you know where our commonalities may lie and and by doing that like showing true interest in somebody and um and to me that's that's one thing that has really kind of given me more purpose than anything and um you know I'll go back to to Christ and like you know, we were talking about sacrificial. I mean, show me a, a more sacrificial person than than Christ himself, you know, and at the end of the day, like, say what you want about religion and all this and that. But if you just take the figure of of Christ and you break down his life and what he was all about and what he did and what he chose to spend his time doing here on earth, like, name me a better person to try to follow than that. You know, you can't do it. I've, I've looked, I've tried and it's definitely not me. I promise you that I follow myself long enough and I'm going to just be felt hopeless at the end of the day, but, you know, look to where you can serve others. And for me, it's been centered on a Christ like mindset. And that's, that's really where I found purpose.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate that so much. Um, I, f- I forget who said this, Matt, but they said, "In um, more often than not, in serving others, you will discover more about yourself than you ever imagined." And, and yeah. maybe that's a good place to start because, I, you know, when the going gets tough, Matt, I think a, a, um, from an ego perspective, men draw in; they do become siloed, they do become silent, they do become alone, which is kind of contrary to the connection uh, aspect that you just talked about, that it is, it is in dialogue with people that we learn, we grow, we connect, and we might be exposed to something, um, about ourselves that we might not have recognized or given credit to, but somebody else helped us see it. Right. It's like somebody coming up to you and saying, Matt, wow, you're, you're really an inspirational leader. And that might catch you off guard going, why did? not that's, that's not really what I'm thinking about myself right now, but at least somebody else snapped you out of that and allowed you to see something that's possible. And, and, and maybe in our smallness, we lose sight of what's possible. We lose, we lose hope. Um, that transitions me, Matt, in my thinking to a, a big transition you had in your life in 2018. And anybody who Googles your name and hunting will come across this story uh, of an accident you had in, in 2018 that, uh, changed your trajectory. And and maybe that's an unfair statement. Did that accident alter your trajectory of, of living? Let's, let's start there.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. Um, so I guess I can kind of get into the, you know, some of the details and what happened. Um, cause it's, it's a wild story and, um, it's hard for me to really dive into everything that, mm-hmm. that took place, um, just because there's just so much to unpack there. But I will, I will touch on some of the highlights. So um, December the 28th in 2018, is just about three – a little over three years ago now. Um, so we were – I was duck hunting um, with a couple of friends, and we were kind of wrapping up the duck hunt and packing our gear – And um, I had laid my shotgun down in the back of a Polaris Ranger uh, side-by-side. And um, we had a a black Labrador retriever with us um, to fetch ducks and stuff. And he jumped in the bed of the Ranger. And a couple of seconds later, we don't know exactly how it happened, but the dog bumped the gun in a way that caused it to go off. And I was standing like maybe six inches, kind of the barrel was kind of off to the left side of my body. And I was standing about six inches from the muzzle of it. Um, Now it went through like a a side by side, uh, the plastic cargo bed of it, and then into my left leg. And it hit me basically at the top of my um, left thigh and like groin area. I knew pretty quickly like it was bad, you know, because it hit my femoral artery and my blood pressure just, just fell, just plummeted pretty, pretty much instantly. I mean, it was crazy. Like it was almost like paralysis. And um, you know, when they, when everybody kind of realized and the shock set in like, okay, he just got shot. Um, Then, you know, everybody went into panic mode and started calling um, 911 and, um, they ended up driving me to the highway, which was probably about a mile from where we were. And that's where the ambulance met us. And um, they put me in the ambulance and I went into cardiac arrest on the way to the hospital. Um, they got me to the hospital, um, tried to revive me, several, several different attempts. Some doctors had given up and they were like, this is hopeless. And then eventually, um, after, I don't know how much time had expired, but it was, it was close to an hour, I want to say. And they eventually got my heart back going got me, uh, got blood pumped in my body and, and kind of stabilized me a little bit. But the hospital I was at was not a major trauma center and I had catastrophic wounds. And, um, so they ended up having to airlift me to Jackson, Mississippi, uh, which is, where University of Mississippi Medical Center is. It's, I think, the largest hospital in Mississippi and, like, one of the biggest employers in Mississippi. I mean, that place is huge. But anyway, I got there, and they have just amazing surgeons and a trauma team, a vascular surgeon, everybody. And they ended up saving my life, but they had to uh, amputate my left leg at the hip level um, in order to do that. And, uh, I don't really remember any of this cause I was in a coma for 12 days. Like basically after they loaded me in the ambulance on the highway, I don't really remember anything from that point until 12 days later. Um, I had some wild dreams during that time, which I thought were actually happening uh, when I woke up, which was crazy, but I'm not going to go off on that, that rabbit hole. But, um, anyway, so you wake up in the hospital. I'm like, first off, what am I doing here? Like what's going on? And then it kind of, they kind of people, my wife was there, Leanna, and um, <clears throat> she kind of started to explain like, you've been here for almost two weeks now. And um, just kind of reminded me of what had happened. And I I have full memory and everything of like getting shot and getting to the highway, like, I remember everything about that. But um, in my mind, I was thinking, you know, I'll be, I'll live, you know, I'm awake now, like, I'm fine. And I had no idea my left leg had been amputated at the time. And because of what's called phantom pain, and you can actually still feel, excuse me, the uh, limb that's there. And now I can still feel it today, which is pretty wild. Most people don't realize that, but, um, the brain does some crazy stuff, but, um, anyway, so eventually that news sinks in, like I lost my leg, like, what am I going to do now? You know, and the type of amputation I have, which is, I mentioned up at the hip, it's called hip disarticulation, which is, it's very, very rare, um the nickname for it is actually hippie so like I thought that was pretty far out like I was a hippie for life when uh when they ended up taking my leg like that but anyway um they started to kind of give me the outlook of life and like what most people end up doing with that that level of amputation and they said look you're probably going to be in a wheelchair you probably won't walk um basically giving me worst case scenario you know and I'm sitting there a 29 year old young man, kid still, really. And um, I've got a one-year-old son at the house. I've got a wife who depends on me. Like, am I really just going to be stuck in a wheelchair and, and not be able to do anything? I was like, I've got to figure something out here. Like, this isn't going to work. And um, so anyway, you go through the process of of trying to understand life and then why this stuff happens and then the fact that it actually did happen and it's not going back and nothing you can do is going to ever change that and then trying to live with that guilt that you know what have I done for not just my life but my child's life my son like I'm not going to be the dad that I always thought I was going to be I'm not going to be you know playing football and running routes in the backyard like all that's different now and it was just just so many things that go through your mind and go through your head when you're when you're contemplating a life change that drastic and that fast you know it's not like I had some time to prepare for it I just woke up and it was there like I didn't have any way to think about think through it or or plan for it or anything and I just had to dive in head first without any warning and um so I start to sit there and kind of play back in my mind, like, okay, they're telling me I need to work out. They're telling me I need to get my body in good shape and get strong. I'm like, I know how to do that. <laughs> like, I've, already, I've done that before, you know, thinking back to my career at LSU. And, um, you know, like I like I've said, like going through a tragic – circumstance like that brought me to the edge but I was in a way I was already kind of used to that because you know playing football at LSU and, and going through the physical training programs that also brought me to the edge so I knew what the edge felt like and I knew what it was going to take for me to really you know gain independence back gain my life back and I th- also thought back, kind of I hinted down it earlier with my LSU career, like I was very selfish. Um, you know, I, I probably took shortcuts because I didn't feel like doing it that day and this and that. And I thought back and said, all right, well, where did those shortcuts get you at the end of your football career? Nowhere, not where you wanted to be. So if I start taking shortcuts now through this building my body back stronger process, you're not going to get to where you could have been if you do everything you can everything in your power to you know gain your independence back so that hurt and that pain of my football career that didn't work out for me ended up playing a monumental part in my recovery for a life change that no one can understand no one can see coming most people can't comprehend And to me, like that just, the more I think about it, the more I weigh on that, sit on that, the more I just see, you know, God, it's, it's like almost by design how it all worked out. And, you know, as a young man at LSU, I didn't understand it at the time. I thought it was, you know, just not fair and life's not fair and this and that. But little did I know what was down the road for me and how, in fact, that, tough moment would end up creating the person capable of overcoming a tougher moment down the road. And, um, you know, it just, it really floors me to just kind of look back and think about everything I've been through, everything that I'm going to continue to go through from now on. And, you know, having, having my son there, having, my wife there having people that depended on me that really really drove me to um to really make the most out of a bad situation and and now I also have a a young daughter too we have a a daughter her name's Charlotte she's um about a year and a half now so she's like we kind of consider her like the miracle baby because I shouldn't have lived so if I wouldn't have lived, she wouldn't be here either so you know it's kind of a life has come full circle since that horrific day in uh, December three years ago. So I don't know. It's a, it's a wild story. And like I said, I can, I can touch on the highlights, but I can't dive into everything.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a three year story, right? I mean, there is a lot that's happened to you and not only, uh, not only physically, but also in, in your mindset, uh, I'm, I'm curious, Matt, what you have to say about the edge, because um, the, the, the edge is relative for a lot of people. Um, I speak with a, a lot of young men who are at the bottom of life, who, who believe they only have two choices. One is to check out, and the other one is to fight back for an opportunity to find happiness in their life. They're that low. Um, I I talked to other young men who were addicted to substances that have brought them to the bottom. Um, I talked to other men who are so tired of looking for purpose and passion. They're just at a loss. They don't know what to do. That's a lot of different edges. And then we, we also come to your edge that you speak relatively that you've, you've been to training edges before where you were humbled by a training program, but then you were also brought to the edge of life um, that was not your choice. And yet you, you, you made a decision um, to do something with the outcome of, of that, not to be a victim, but a victor. How, so that's my question. Um, what's the difference in the mindset that creates the victim versus the victor, in your opinion?
1: Yeah. So so what does it take to, to live or, or be on the edge? Like, what do you have to go through while you're there on that edge? And that's that's suffering. Right. And I would say in our society, most people tend to run from any potential suffering that could happen to them. Like we do everything we can. We go to the doctor when we start sneezing and coughing, like we don't want to get sicker. So we're going to go get some medicine and fix this, which is great. You know, like it's, it's modern medicine. Like it's helped our, the human race become what it has today. But there's also an element to that, that kind of draws away from um, actually getting in the muck sometimes and, and actually going through some suffering and, you know, for me, I I was one of those people that wanted to, I wanted everything, I wanted to have everything I ever wanted, but I really didn't want to suffer too much to get that, you know, I wanted it to be an easy road, and just kind of coast through life, and then end up where I always wanted to be, and that's rarely ever the case, like, not many people get to just easily just go through life, and they end up right where they wanted to be the whole time, like, everybody goes through suffering. Everybody goes through hard things. And I'm a firm believer now, like only through suffering, can your character and your, your person and everything about you really grow and really change and really become something, um, you know, bigger than you ever thought you could be. And, you know, the thing about suffering is like we've got a society that tends to run from it, but whether you, embrace the suffering or you run from the suffering, you're still going to have to go through it at some point. And, um, you know, my, my kind of something that I've been dwelling on here recently is like with my circumstance and what I deal with, like suffering is very real for me. And I either had the choice to choose my suffering or, I'm giving that choice or I'm giving that up to the world to choose my suffering for me or my opponent to choose my suffering for me. So I don't know about you, but I would much rather take control of how I suffer than let the world control that for me. So for me, it's my suffering now that i really kind of tend to dive into is like exercise and fitness, because that is very important for me to be able to get around and move independently. And, um, you know, it's not fun. Like there's most days I don't want to go and and put myself through a workout. I don't want to do that. But I choose to do it anyway because I understand if I don't, that suffering is just going to come in another form. And that form I'm probably not going to have much control over. So that's really kind of something that I've – a mindset, I guess, that I've really adopted is to kind of take control of suffering, you know, and maybe it's not workouts for you. Maybe it's just putting yourself in an uncomfortable situation. You know, maybe you have a a new client or a customer or whatever you got to go call on and you don't know anything about them and a cold call basically. And, you know, a lot of people will be hesitant about that. Just dive in and just go do it. And if you have to suffer going through it, you're going to learn and you're going to get better in that process. Same with, like, another big fear people have, is like, public speaking. You know, that's something that I've had to really dive into with, with what's happened to me in the last three years. You know, I've told my story many times, and and I have more, you know, on the schedule to tell it, more times to tell it. So, you know, it's just something that you've got to kind of embrace the suffering a little bit. Because if you don't, if you try to run from it, eventually – a different kind of suffering that you may not have control over is going to catch up to you.
0: Such wisdom right there. And and, you know what I find really fascinating, Matt, is that you could not have predicted this accident in your life, nor the outcome that it created for you. And yet you were finding purpose, um, every day in in telling your story that's touching someone else and and hundreds and thousands of other people through the different media outlets through which you've told your story, that's greater than you. So um, even though it happened to you, um, it doesn't, um, the the accident doesn't define you. It's what you've done since the accident that, that has, and will continue. I've seen you flip those tires at the Mac. I can't do it with two legs. Um, and and you're out there slaying it with grit and courage and, and strength. So, so in the moment when people are in that suffering mentality, I know it's hard for them to hear uh, any advice uh, because the the pain is so great for them. it's it's really hard to hear anything external. Do you think there's something that can be said to someone simply, That allows them maybe to find a glimmer of hope in their darkness. Is there a word that can come into their life that that can help them see a different outcome for themselves rather than a darker one?
1: Yeah, I would say the first thing is just to look around. You know, I promise you, whatever you're going through, whatever you're dealing with, you're not alone in it. You know, and that was that's kind of one of the things that's hard about being an amputee is like you just don't see them you don't see another amputee every day, you know, and and you go long enough without seeing somebody else like you and you feel like you're alone in it, you know, and as bad, as much as people like to harp on social media and how bad it is, there is, there is good in it too. And and one of those things is being able to find people who may be going through something like you, somebody that can kind of lift you up and build you up. And then eventually once if someone has built you up and helped you through it, then you can return the favor and help someone else through it down the road. So it kind of starts to form a chain. And, and that's something that I've found purpose in. And one of the things that I found purpose in um, what I'm doing now is at, when I was first hit with the reality of this amputation, the first thing we did was try to find somebody else that's going through it. And, um, you know, I was able to find people through social media and the Internet Um, that had the same you know level that I did and watch them be able to walk and be able to you know live life and do things so I was able to watch them reach out to them they poured into me and then I kind of took off and figured it out for myself and then since then I've been able to turn around and pour into other people who I've come in contact with because um you know, I, I don't do a lot on social media. I'll post stuff every now and then. Every time I do, it's just, I get a flood of people that reach out and say, man, how do you, how are you doing this? Like, what are you doing? I, I just went through an amputation or or something. And it's just, it's so life-giving to, to be able to come full circle and go from seeking help to giving help. And, um, You know, that that's the main thing I would say for somebody who's struggling, somebody who's out there that is feeling just helpless, like find somebody else who's going through what you're going through, because I promise you it exists no matter what it is. Somebody else is dealing with it or somebody else has dealt with it before you And, and you know, find that person, allow them to help you. And then once they've helped you, you turn around and help somebody else with that.
0: Wow, Matt, there's there's no better way to end this show than with that wisdom. So, man, uh, I really appreciate the 53 minutes of absolute joy uh, that you brought into my world today. This was a, a story I've wanted to hear come out of your mouth for um, quite a while now. So thank you for saying yes.
1: Yep, sure thing. I really appreciate the opportunity. And um, if you ever need anything, just let me know. I'll be here to help. Mm-hmm.